Hi there, I'm Jazzy Cook and I'm here with SciDance, a podcast to open and explore the world of dance science. Today on SciDance, I'm here with Matt Lamarck. Matt is a strength and conditioning coach working within the Royal Ballet School for the last three years. Matt completed his undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning science and more recently a master's by research in quantifying training loads in elite adolescent ballet in a research collaboration between the Royal Ballet School and St Mary's University, Twickenham. Developing an understanding of training demands in adolescent classical ballet, Matt's research interests surround training load management, fatigue monitoring and relative energy deficiency. Matt has previously worked within both male and female rugby at Richmond Rugby, male football at Leighton Orient Football Club, as well as a short stint in academy level cricket. I am super excited to be talking to Matt about his work in training loads today. Hi Matt, how are you today? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. If we just start with, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this field and where your interest in training loads stems from. And uh, as you said, I'm, I'm Matt. Um, I got into SNC. I was originally a technical coach. And so throughout college and like sixth form, I got into sports coaching and then eventually stumbled across. I had a tutor who was a strength and conditioning coach and I thought it sounded quite interesting. And then I went down a path of looking at what SNC looks like and end up applying for university. So I went to St. Mary's University, Twickenham, where I think I joined in 2014. And at the time, there's only about seven universities in the country offering this degree. So it's pretty, um, it's very niche. Um, and I was accepted into there. Over that time, I ended up working, doing internships in cricket, football and rugby, both male and female rugby. Um, towards the end of my second year, over the summer between second year and third year, there was a advert that went out on an email went out on a university saying the Royal Ballet School were looking to profile in September and were like asking for student help and having worked in football and rugby is really eye-opening football is exactly as you expect it to be everyone's very dramatic and rugby is a stark contrast of everyone wanted to be there everyone was really happy to put the work in and but now I got this impression from that dance that it was very similar and I hadn't worked in dance before. Um, I'm a very bad dancer, so I don't really dance myself. Um, and so I seemed really, I was really intrigued by this email and offered up my services to help profile these dancers. And so that's about two days in September, uh, must have been September 2016. And then later on that year, around uh, Christmas, there's another email that went out saying that they're, look, they're gonna expand their services and they're offering up an internship. Um, and because I enjoyed my experience working there, the guy who was the SNC coach before me, guy Adam Matusi, was really knowledgeable. I knew him from uni, um, so I applied for that internship, and fortunately enough, I was lucky to get, in, uh, get it. And towards the end of my internship, the the team was expanding even more so, and so there's two SNC opportunities coming up. Uh, one of which was a part-time strength conditioning coach based at White Lodge and then another one was based at the upper school but it was part-time strength conditioning and then part-time doing a master's in research and one of the training questions they were looking at was pretty open but is training load is what they're interested in. Um, I haven't worked in football and rugby I got to use different types of train load monitoring so in football they had heart rate monitors and GPS devices at a pretty low level club just because they had the financial like uh, the infrastructure then when I was working in rugby as as a well-established club but they didn't have the same finances and so the training load monitoring tools we use are quite different um so I already had quite a lot of experience over two seasons and 
I was quite interested in training loads. And so a job which was half-time delivery in strength conditioning and half-time research was right up my street. Um, I applied for that and I was, again, lucky enough to get it. What do we, for the purpose of today, what do we mean when we talk about training loads? Like, what does this topic encompass? What does it look like in your job? So for this purpose, training loads typically refers to the physical stress applied to an athlete or a dancer uh, that they're exposed to during their training. There's definitely like a psychological aspect, but I'm more involved in monitoring the physical side of it. Um, and that'd be like the mechanical work that the athlete or the dancer's doing, but also the physiological response that happens with inside the body of that athlete or dancer. Um, there's almost four ways training loads can be monitored. And so they can be monitored uh, externally, internally. So external would be the mechanical work. For example, ballet might be the amount of jumps they do and football might be the amount of sprints they do. But then the internal response would be the heart rate response, the breathing rate. Um, and then you can break that down further by looking at objective training loads or subjective training loads. And so objective training loads would be the data derived from heart rate or the GPS, where subject would be more the perceptual the athlete's, um, yeah, athlete's response, how they feel the training load, uh, their training was for them and how they perceive their response to that. Um, when I refer to training load, it'd be for a given session. And so usually that'd be like the volume of the session multiplied by the intensity. So if it's an hour worth of ballet class times by the intensity either from heart rate or from the dancer's perceived exertion. But then we'd quantify that, we'd summate that and quantify it for a day or a week, or look at a month and a year. Yeah, sure. So I think that's a really good overview. Why do you think it's important that we look at this in dance? So having looked at it in your job in other sports, why do you think it's really relevant to dance? So I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of unknowns in dance, but it's also the dance science has been quite well established in the sense that there's some really good researchers out there. Um, but I personally believe because dance doesn't have the same funding, it's a couple of years behind where it would be an equivalent of sports science. So they've both been around longer, there's been more investment and potentially more researchers in sports science. But training loads is a relatively low hanging fruit and it, in a sense it's easily accessible and it will tell us a lot about the population we're working with or some of the other bigger research questions. So in my mind there's ultimately a cycle we need to break. So we know that high training loads causes a higher risk of injury or illness. We know that in ballet there's a higher risk of injury. We know in ballet there's a high workload. And so it's quite a repetitive cycle in the sense that ballet dancers do a lot, they get injured a lot. And so there's at some point we need to break the cycle. Um, there's been some quite good investigations out there. So there's a research paper by Ekegren who identified that adolescent dancers had a 60, sorry, a 76% chance of received an injury during an academic year. Um, there's another research paper, I think, by Shah, who identified a similar context, but found that 82% of dancers would pick up an injury during a season. And so that's very high numbers. Um, and then when you break that down, the difference between overuse injuries, so injuries related to doing too much, and acute injuries such as a... Um, a sudden movement, an unexpected injury. Um, so yeah, the overuse injuries account for about 80% of an injuries over the season. 
And some researchers found slightly lower numbers, like 75, some have found like 60. But ultimately, the large majority of injuries in dance and in ballet are overuse related. And so you've got to ask the question, like, okay, why is that? What are the dancers doing? Um, there's not too much about training loads in ballet. Um, we know that there's some information on training volume. And so in adolescent schools and full-time vocational schools, they could be dancing up to 30 hours a day. Um, in companies, it could be around 10 hours plus, depending on if they've got shows in the evening and amount of their rehearsals. And so that's suddenly very daunting. If, it's, if a professional company's there five days a week, then that's almost 50 hours. If an adolescent school's doing 30 hours of dance related activity a week for potentially 35, 40 weeks of a season, um, that's quite a lot of work. But then when you start to look into the intensity, the research says that potentially not doing too much from a physiological point of view. And so Twitcher and her research group found about 40% of the work periods in classical ballet were at moderate intensity, about 10% were at a high intensity and about 5% were at a very high intensity. And so the large majority of the work would have been at a moderate to low intensity. And then when you think about that, it kind of it makes sense, especially in a vocational school where there's a large majority of the time led towards technical teaching. So there's always going to be breaks in the classes for a teacher to give feedback. Or if you've got a group of 15, 16 dancers, they may have to be split off into different groups in center work or allegro work. And so it makes sense there'd be a lot of rest in class. We know that from a physiological point of view, ballet is very intermittent. There are some periods of high intensity work, but it's ultimately very stop-starty. And that's backed up by other research. And so there's a research group from Australia, so um, Jeffries, uh, I think Wallace and Coots, they've looked at similar thing of intensity in classes and they backed up with a rate of perceived exertion, which would be a subject of formal training load monitoring. So the dancer's perception of how hard they worked, but also linked that into heart rate. So looking at some objective numbers and sports science and dance science knows that the correlation between rate of perceived exertion and heart rate is very strong. Um, and so for companies or organizations that can't afford heart rate monitors, then using rate of perceived exertion would be a very valid form of collecting some data uh, management. Um, for example, that's what we do at the Royal Ballet School. It's easier to track 220 dancers training load from their subjective point of view. And we've done validity and reliability studies where we found that it's actually very accurate in our population. But they found that, so going back to this research group, they found that um, around just under 80% of the training conducted in this research study was completed at less than 75% of peak heart rate. And so again, it was very sub-maximal, it was really going into maximal intensity. So from a phys physiological point of view, we know that it's not that in ballet isn't that intense, even though they're dancing, potentially dancing for 30 hours a week, it's not physiologically that intense on the body. But then you need to factor in the mechanical work. Um, we know that kind of ballet is constrained by the choreography that's set by either the teacher or in rehearsals or for the performances. Um, and so we know that it's not that aerobically intense. But from a mechanical point of view, we know that a smaller jump, the landing forces exposed to dancers can range from about three times body weight up to nine or ten percent, uh, nine or ten times body weight. And so, if suddenly you've got a sixty kilogram dancer doing about hundred jumps 
in a class. That's where you can understand why these overuse injuries may start to build up. Um, another research group identified, I think it may have been Twitch again, they looked at the amount of jumping volume in company dancers and they found that male dancers on average jumped about seven times a minute within a performance. And so if a performance varies from like from two hours to three hours, that's suddenly quite a lot of jumping a dancer may be exposed to. Um, normally at the school, when in the first year of my master's in research, one of the things I had to do was suddenly like almost get the school up to speed. And we had all these different streams, all related to training load that we wanted to look at. So we started to saw some heart rate monitors to look at the physiological response. Um, we wanted to get some accelerometers to count how many jumps, but unfortunately we didn't have the funding to do that. And so for about three or four months, I would record a ballet class and I'd do this on a daily basis um, for about, I think it was about three weeks, just because of the sheer amount of data I had. And so I'd record this ballet class, which would be, and then I'd watch it back in about 0.2 times normal speed. And I'd sit there with clickers, the kind of type of clickers a uh, security guard would have at an event. And I would watch this class and I'd count how many jumps would be, whether from a single leg point of view or a double leg point of view. And I broke that down quite far into a sense that we looked at how many arabesques a, a teacher would set, for example. And just within a kind of 10, 15 minute portion of the, that date of the, the leg recital class, our dancers would jump between 150 times up to 300 times in this 50 minute class. And that's just a snapshot of one day. And then at the Royal Ballet School, we train for 35 weeks of the year. Um, so just looking at Monday to Friday, if they're doing potentially 200 jumps in just a 15 minute portion of their class, but then they may have coaching afterwards or they may do a coaching where the guys will do big jumps and the ladies will do point jumps. But suddenly their jump volume shoots up through the sky. And so training loads is ultimately kind of a never ending list, but in ballet, there's a kind of clear reason why we know that over, uh, there's a high rate of injury. And when you break it down, you can understand, okay, well, maybe we should monitor this so we can get the best out of dancers or ultimately lower our injury risk. If we don't want 80% of our cohort getting an injury in a season and we don't really want the large majority of those injuries to be overused in nature because that means we've ultimately failed somehow we've been doing too much or we haven't conditioned our dancers enough to deal with the loads we're expecting them to be put through mm, that makes a lot of sense and there's a lot of stuff to think about there so you've talked about it's obviously very relevant for injury prevention but something you just touched on there i hadn't prepped this so just like off the top of your head what would you say about using like research and training loads and monitoring training loads for performance enhancement as well as injury prevention. In strength conditioning, as you're always taught there's almost two sides of strength conditioning. You want to gear the dancer up to being more robust and so they can deal with the loads associated with what they have to do, the tasks they have to do. So you're always trying to reduce the injury risk available to them, whether that's making them stronger or making them more conditioned to what they may have to go through. And the other side of that would be performance enhancement. And so typically that would be getting a dancer to lift as much as possible or jump as high as possible so they're physically able to do what they have to do. Um, but from my experience in working with the school, then that's not always what I do. Sometimes to get the best performance out of someone, they may be training a lot as it is. And so we always need to take a step back. 
And instead of getting to jump high or lift heavy in the gym, you might get them to do some recovery work. And so when it comes to trying to get the most out of a dancer from a performance point of view, it's quite a difficult question to answer because it's one of those really annoying answers that it depends. Um, it depends on where we are in this season. If we're getting up to our performances, then we want our dancers to be as fresh as possible. There is, it's, it doesn't just extend to dance, it happens in sport as well, but there's definitely a thing with technical teachers and when we're coming up to performance on an event, we want to rehearse as much as possible, which makes sense. But the more we rehearse it, the more we're fatiguing the dancers. And so suddenly you come to your performance or your show and your dancers are really, really tired. And so their capacity to be the best they can possibly be is going to be reduced. Um, and so by being able to monitor their training loads, you may be able to identify that they're potentially doing a little bit too much. In towards the end of my second year of my two-year masters, and for all of that was progressing our research within the school. But we started to look at the fatigue response associated with ballet. And so we had about two years worth of training load data. And there's an additional six months before that, which we had data we had and understood about the dancers, but the way we collected it wasn't as best as it could be. And so we had about 30 months worth of data, of training load data, what, what normal looked like in the school. And we also had access to jump plates. And so what we started to look at was how training load varied from a week to week basis. Also the individual response to that fatigue. So every day the dancers would have to fill out a wellbeing form. And it's about 90 seconds to do. So it's not that intense when you're when a dancer is 16, 17 is on their phone all day. It's not that time consuming. But within that uh, survey, they'd have to fill out their perceived soreness or their perceived fatigue, and they'd have to rate things like sleep. Um, and so we had some perceptual fatigue data, but we want to start looking at some objective, objective data. Because it's very easy to, for an athlete just to say they're not very fatigued. Um, when I was working in football, I used to have to do the same thing, but I'd literally be stood at the front door with a whiteboard. And I'd ask the dancers, uh, the footballers, I'd be like, how high are you today? Um, how are you feeling? But in football, I remember one, guy, one morning a guy came in and he was a very arrogant football player, which I'm sure you know, there's probably not too many of them out there. Um, but he had had a bad morning. He had got stuck in traffic. I think he had an argument with his girlfriend. And he just stormed in through the front door and walked through and did an all freeze. And so he kind of knew the questions I was asking and just gave his response. And so automatically I knew that he wasn't in a good place, but it's very easy for an athlete or a dancer just to say that they're okay from a survey point of view, but it's a little bit harder to get away from the objective numbers from the actual movement. And so every morning now, and it's happened for about the last year and a half, every Monday morning, we get all the dancers to do one maximal jump on the force platforms. And this would be before their ballet class. And so they're not warm from a ballet point of view, but by this time they probably already have done half an hour Tension hours worth of their own warm up before class. And so it's just one single jump where we look at a couple of different variables. But from my point of view, it's, ob it's objective. And so we get to see their jump height. We get to see if there's any asymmetries between the left or the right leg, which could be worrying. We get to see how they're landing. And then we can plot this on a weekly basis, or we do this every week. So if we plot this on a weekly basis and we can see the change over time. And the first six months we were doing this, we started in January. And we had our summer shows coming up in July. And for the first six months, we wasn't going to put an intervention in place. It was just almost monitoring it. And what we saw was that at the start of the term in January, when all the kids had come back from Christmas, 
they were in a peak physical fitness. They, most of them got a personal best in a jump score. When gradually as a term went on, that dropped. And then we had a half term and that would go back up because they had a week's rest. And then they'd be jumping even higher. And the same thing happened after Easter, they'd had three weeks off, they'd jumped their highest. And then as the more and more we trained, that went down, which made sense. But then the lowest jump values you saw in that six month period was in the three weeks of our shows. And so that meant potentially we're doing too much from a physical point of view that in the shows you want them to jump really high and dancers still pull it off. They still look so impressive on stage. But from a physical point of view, they were quite fatigued and weren't physically at their best when we wanted them to be at our best. So if we're looking at that in the Royal Ballet School, obviously there's a lot of research that goes on there. It's really quite applicable, easy to track. You can look at a lot of different things. But in your typical dance school, so in like a smaller village somewhere, your typical like eight to 18 dance school, what applications might this research have for dancers and teachers there? How could they use this in their own lives? So we're very, very fortunate in a sense. We have the resources available to us. Um, but the teachers uh, are still relatively uneducated. Um, myself and my current colleague, Nama Sweeney, we both have our own research interests and he's interested in around growth because he works at White Lodge. Um, and myself is more the training loads. That's kind of what was associated with our job. But both us and our predecessor, Adam Matisse, had to do a lot of education for the teachers. Um, one of the things when I started looking at training loads was we had the dancers perceived exertion of a class and so we kind of knew what how hard they worked in that class but what I'd done was for about a week I spoke to the teachers before the class and said how hard do you do you want this session to be and some of them maybe said like four or five out of ten so ten being maximal one being like a walk in the park kind of thing um, and then at the end of the class I'd ask them again like how okay now you've had delivered the class how hard do you perceive it to be and there would be some discrepancy in that afterwards it may be easier than they thought it'd be or they perceived it as they pushed the dancers a little bit more um there's one time all our teachers like all teachers are very knowledgeable they're all very good at what they do but we had one teacher who wanted the class to be 10 out of 10 so he wanted a maximum intensity on a Tuesday morning in October and so you kind of need to ask questions of, okay, why do you want this to be the most intense class? Surely if you want a 10 out of someone, it should be on a performance or a show. That's when you want someone to be working the hardest. So we had to do a lot of education and we still do. We educate the dancers, um, all the Royal Valley School students do a degree program and we teach on that. Um, at the Royal Valley School, they have a diploma for dance teaching. And again, the healthcare team, we lecture on that. And so we're educating the current students are current educating the future teachers, but also educating the current teachers. And that was probably the biggest thing we needed to do was make the teachers understand why. And so when we engage in dialogue, the teachers couldn't really account for why they wanted a class to be a 10 out of 10. And then similarly with some of the work, we counted like how many arabesques we'd do or how many combres would happen in the class. And again, when I presented this data back to teachers, they were like, oh, this is like really like outrageous. Um, I think to, to protect the teacher, because we have about 12 teachers in the school and they could all work out who, like they all know what year group they look after, what group they look, uh, they teach. And so I hadn't included any names or anything like that, but automatically they're trying to guess like what year group this could have been. And like, why were they doing 130 devapes in a 19 minute session? Or why are they doing 70 arabesques? Or why were they doing 35 combros? Um, 
and at the time he had quite a lot of lower back injuries and that started to make sense of all the arabesques and combres the dancers were exposed to. So the teacher was automatically trying to guess and look for something to, to blame it on. But I think ultimately teachers, we don't need to blame and injuries are always going to happen as part of doing physical exercise. You can walk down the street and trip over and that's, that's an injury. Um, but I think we need to, teachers need to be open to the idea of education, but I also think they need to, it's quite hard to be able to remove yourself. You need to criticize your session almost. You need to, before the session, think, okay, what do I want to achieve out of this? Um, I know a lot of teachers are very good at writing session plans, but it's almost avoiding the temptation to do more than that session plan need to identify what you're working towards. If you're teaching a class in September and you've got a show coming up in December for Christmas, then you may not want to kind of be working maximally then, or it may not be necessary to start rehearsing a piece that you're going to perform nine months down the line. Um, so I think for those, for smaller schools, or regardless of any size, the teacher needs to be kind of quite open with what they're working towards. Um, there's a concept of periodization and I've sent, um, there'll be a couple of links at the end of this from One Dance. There's a couple of nice articles on periodization that One Dance UK have put together with a couple of practitioners. But you should be able to periodize your training because that will help with your understanding your training loads. Um, you need to be mindful of the volume and intensity you want to work towards. But I think one of my biggest education points that I found myself is just watching classes, there will always be, a teacher might set 30 jumps and there might be two or three groups working. And you'll get a couple of students and hopefully hearing this, you'll be able to picture students in your head, but there'll be a couple of students who'll do, who will do the, almost the bare minimum the teacher asks for. And when they're not working, they might be getting some water, they might be stretching, they may still be diligent and engaged. But then there'll be a couple of students who will do their jumps. And then whilst the next group is working, or it's in center or allegro, they'll also do that. They may mark it at the back or they may physically do it as well. And there'll be one or two students who'll do everything. And so a teacher might say, okay, or thinking ahead, okay, we're only gonna do 40 jumps today. But then suddenly there's little Rebecca, or little Johnny, who's done like 120 jumps. And they're the ones you kind of almost need to be mindful of because they're the ones who probably break down first. So you can be really diligent and have this amazing session and have it mapped out so you know what you're gonna do but it's also it's being aware of the rogue students in a good way who are willing to do more than they need to do. And I think that was one of the most eye-opening things for me was when watching these video sessions, I realized that okay, the teacher set 150 jumps, but there was a student who'd done 450 because they'd done it three times. Yeah, so if a teacher can then, so they'll plan effectively, they'll look at periodization and they'll have clear goals and set their class accordingly what benefits could they expect to see so there's reduced injury what else might there be so it'll be reduced injury and whether it's whether you can objectify it or whether it's just subjective there'll definitely be an increase in performance um ultimately the more you do the more a dancer is going to be fatigued and they may not have the best recovery strategies we know that kids are pretty bad at being on their phones all day um, the amount of sleep you need varies person to person, but realistically, if you're teaching in a vocational school or as classes in the evening, your students aren't probably going to get the best amount of sleep. And even if they do, they're also going to have a psychological load or a physical load associated with what they do in a day. And so even if you're teaching 
uh, a nine-year-old or ten-year-old student in the afternoon in the afternoon or evening they may still have classes at school during the day or they may be running around or they may be doing all these other extra curricular activities um, and it's hard when you're only working with them for a small amount of time you want to get the best out of them but being mindful of the workload you're putting them through but also the more general workload will see a decrease in injuries um, that's one of the biggest ones because ultimately teachers want to teach if you have a group of 10 students and four of them have got injured, then that's 40% of your class you, you're not going to teach. Um, so less injuries means more teaching, which ultimately teaches one. But also they'll be able to get the, phys the, the best out of a student physically. If a dancer isn't fatigued, then they're going to be mentally more available to pick up your, your cues, your feedback. Um, they'll be able to physically handle your session more. And over time, you'll be able to push them more. You don't have to always be cautious. Um, as we want to, to be able to improve and adapt, you do need to take someone past their almost their normal to get them to, yeah, you, you need to drive up the intensity at some point. But it's just understanding where that is and where the dancers are in relation to that. The, the two biggest benefits will be um, more dancers in class because of less injuries, but also the dancers will be more fresh, less fatigued, and be able to handle more and be able to be pushed more over time. Yeah, so are there any limitations or considerations that teachers should be mindful of if they're looking to use this research? I think a conscious attempt to be better is more beneficial than no attempt. Um, I don't know everything about training loads, yet I've been studying it, I've been around, it's been my life for the last three and a half years. Um, so I don't expect, teachers to suddenly like listen to this podcast and be able to implement those of things yeah, it's not going to be like um all single dancers straight away but it's better to try and understand um the train loads or the fatigue associated with the dancers um so i guess it's almost you don't have to go too far you don't have to introduce all these amazing you know to buy heart rate monitors or fitbits or the students just to like see how they're feeling but just engage in dialogue um that's always quite hard in a sense that a, for a student, a teacher is one of their role models. And so if a student is feeling tired or is feeling a little bit under weather, I don't feel like they can really push, then potentially the teacher may be one of the last persons, the last person they're going to tell that to because they ultimately want to impress the teacher. But I think it's over time just building, like getting your students to trust you in a sense that they can be as honest as possible. Um, because you may get a dancer say they are feeling pretty tired and, you, and you'd be able to adapt your session for them or you may have to like push them in different ways. Um, so if they are feeling tired, then maybe they don't have to jump as much, but they could do more proprioceptive work or more technique in port de bras um, quote that stands out to me, and it's the mark of an educated mind is to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Um, and it's, but ultimately, we don't have to really understand everything for it to be meaningful to us but just by showing some a conscious attempt to modify your training or show some understanding towards what you're asking your dancers to do it's very easy for a teacher to plan out a session but not really understand the physical effect um, and that may be because a, a teacher may be two or three times older than the students are teaching they may not be doing physically as much. So you may be able to almost put yourself in your dancers to choose. You're never going to be really able to replicate that and understand everything they've been through. 
So it's just about being open and encouraging honesty from your students to say, okay, I'm not feeling too good. I'm feeling a little tired. And there'll be times where they'll say, I'm feeling great. Can we push a little bit more? And it's understanding what's safe to do so. If there's a student saying that in September and they've just come back from summer holidays, then as a teacher, you may know, okay, well, we don't really have to push now. We can just get the groundwork in and start working our technique. But the time for pushing is later on down the line. Um, and by constantly, constantly being conscious, that's when you're going to reduce the amount of injuries over that season. So you may not instantly see the benefits within the first couple of weeks or a couple of months, but over the year, you definitely will do. Mm, yeah, so I think it's really interesting that the Royal Ballet School use what you're saying about those discussions and filling out the forms, because I think that's something that teachers could definitely take into consideration and it makes it a lot more accessible, which is really good. But looking at the bigger picture, how might the research you're doing and other research in the area impact the way that dancers train in a wider context, say in full-time schools? Where do you see the future of training loads? So I think I've definitely noticed in the three years I've been involved in dance and ballet, that there has been a culture change. Um, and that is gonna be something that will constantly change. We're, even if you're just looking at the competition culture associated with dance, there's been different changes around that. There's been changes in the way we look at dancers and dancers' body composition. That's positively, like a positive culture change. But ultimately any change is gonna cause some little bit of friction in some places. Um, and training loads is ultimately going to be one of them. One of the things we were very conscious of in my, in my first year I was involved when I was collecting all this data was not to suddenly point, like, take it to a room of teachers and point the finger and say, look what you're doing. It's almost kind of getting the teachers to be involved and say, what can we do better? And again, we were very fortunate in the sense that we had a healthcare team and had a very open-minded artistic team. But it's, for training loads, it's going to be looking at the bigger context. And so one of the things we incorporated after the first year was reducing our daily timetable by half an hour. Um, and that doesn't sound too much when you say just reducing it by half an hour, but we're training for six hours a day and that went down to five and a half hours a day. And that will be for five days a week, potentially six, we've got Saturday school for 35 weeks a year. So suddenly that all adds up. And one of the things we definitely have noticed is that our amount of injuries has gone down year on year, and that's not necessarily associated to that, but uh, one of the things that I can say probably is associated to that is the dancers are feeling less fatigued because they're having a little bit more time in the evenings. They're getting home or back to the boarding house half an hour or 45 minutes before they normally would. And so these small little things all add up. Um, moving forward, it's, it'll be very hard. You, If you are into sports, you may notice football players or rugby players or even golfers wear like accelerometers or GPSs and they look quite bulky. Um, dances about aesthetics. So suddenly having 15 dancers in a studio with heart rate monitors under their leotards or a little square box in between their shoulder blades suddenly isn't very aesthetic. Um, so I think there will be a culture change with that. I know at the Royal Ballet Company, there is dancers who are performing on stage, having an accelerometer on their shoulder blades and having a heart rate belt underneath. And that's not being noticed by the audience. It's not being noticed by the rehearsal team and it's not being noticed by like, the artistic staff watching the performances. And so there's ultimately will be a culture change. One of the things when we put a heart rate monitor on the studio was the first time a teacher was like, what is that? Like, why do they have it on? Do they have to always wear that? 
and there's all these questions associated because it just looked it did look very pleasing but then that's something that's changed over the time that i've been involved in school when we've done more research the perception has changed and we're very fortunate enough to be able to show the heart like for example a heart rate monitor is ugly it's this little lump underneath your sternum but being able to show a teacher the heart rate response of their student or the intensity of that class suddenly kind of gets them involved and interested in the okay, and that's kind of that change of perception um another thing in the school is we've almost realigned our school values and now the healthcare program the healthy dancer program is a big part of that school value and so the school want to be pioneers in dance science and dance medical science um and so that's been a big culture change from the first years involved there's almost it did almost feel like us and them in the sense that this was an element of change and ballet as we know is very traditional and so it was nothing personal it was nothing to do with like the teachers but it's almost just that this is a traditional environment and this is the way we've done it for a hundred years and suddenly there's something new here potentially threatening how we do things and so at some point there's always going to be a change in culture but as the team has been involved and as we've been monitoring training loads and be able to intervene if someone's not feeling very good, we've ultimately enhanced the time spent in the studio. And we know that from just looking at our injury numbers, there's less injuries in total. And the injuries we do have, they're not as severe, meaning they don't take as long. And so that means there's more students in the studios being taught now than there was when the healthcare teams first started up in the school. Um, and so that's been something positive that's helped the change culture around of training loads. The teachers want to be able to teach and they want to have an empty class. So being able to teach is something positive and they can associate with that. And now it's got to a point where every time we come off from a holiday, whether it's summer, Christmas or Easter, a teacher will say to me like, so for the last three weeks, we've been progressing our jumping where we didn't jump in three days a week or like the first week maybe once. And so the teachers are naturally periodizing and incorporating periodization into their training. But now I've got teachers coming up to me saying like, do you think it's safe to progress? Um, and it's a nice position to be in because ultimately like my opinion doesn't mean anything in the sense that I'm just a small minnow in like a, in a big sea, but it's a really nice position to be in that the teachers feel that they've, they understand this concept and they want to ask someone for support. And the teachers have been doing this amazing work. And so all the time, the answer is like, yeah, like go for it. You've been really diligent and we've seen these changes. Because one of the things that first happened was after about the third or fourth week of school after a holiday, we had a sudden in, a spike in our injuries because the dancers had just been deconditioned over their break and our training went back to normal. And so now where we started to build up our training coming back from holiday because we've got an understanding of our training loads what that looks like also teachers got an idea of periodization that's bikes completely gone yeah i've learned so much today i can't believe how much there is on that topic is there anything else you'd like to mention or discuss before we say bye um well training loads is uh it's like my adopted child i feel like i can talk about this forever and so i apologize if i rambled but i think for me the biggest take home is for a teacher and this is what I kind of say to my current students who might be involved in teaching later in 20 years down the line or the current dance teachers that I teach on once a year is almost just to be aware of your sessions be able to critique yourself isn't a bad thing so just have an understanding of what you kind of want to work on would be I guess my only take-home message on 
conscious not to add anything else to this brain overload of a of a of a podcast but being able to understand or criticize and develop your yearly program will be the best thing possible for your dancers from a physical point of view but also like a psychological point of view as well yeah that's great thank you so much for your time matt no problem thank you jasmine if you want to find matt or any of the resources mentioned they'll be in the description box of the podcast down below thanks for listening and tune in again next monday for another episode of side dance Thank you.